Well, then there's the question, is there life after death? And indeed, uh, how would we know? There's hardly a more important question that anyone can ever ask in life. The stark fact is we will all die. And I am yet to meet someone who has never thought about death. And indeed, I'm yet to meet someone who, if they're honest, is not bothered by death, at least uh, to some extent, that it hasn't left them with an uncertain feeling. Um, Many of us, I guess, feel like the actor and comedian and and film director Woody Allen who said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work, I want to achieve it through not dying. Death sort of looms large in the future. It's a bit like an unwanted gate crasher. It always ruins the party. For Tolstoy, it ruined much of his life. He wrote these words. My question, which that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Death is going to come. Does it then just mean that everything that I do is pointless and meaningless? Now, whether we allow ourselves to think about it or not, death is is always there around the corner waiting for us, a bit like a crazed axe man hiding in a dark alley. We're never sure when he's going to jump out and get us, but when he does, we know we won't stand a chance. And when death does eventually catch up with us, or those we love, we want to know, indeed we need to know, is there life beyond the grave? Uh, We've heard uh, how Sonia has come face to face uh, with uh, that very question. I'm feeling it particularly acutely at the moment. My mum has cancer uh, in the liver, kidney, lung and bowel. Um, She's recently endured three months of chemotherapy and just last month she was told that the chemotherapy had had no impact on the cancer at all and that she has months rather than years to live. I know there's somebody in the congregation who's faced it just yesterday with their own mum dying. Facing death asks us the big questions of life, doesn't it? What is life all about? What happens when I die? Is there life after death. Those are important questions in our family right now. But let me assure you, it's not something that I've uh, only just begun to think about. Uh, Being a vicar, and I'm sure Ed will echo this, uh, I've known for many years how relevant this question is. I think back to one of the first funerals that I took getting on for 20 years ago now. In preparation for the funeral, I visited the widow of the man who'd just died. Uh, She made me a cup of tea, and uh, as she put the tea down, Uh, in front of me with tears welling up in her eyes and with a tremble in her voice uh, she said this of her husband Vicar, he wasn't religious, he didn't go to church but he's in a better place now isn't he? Well since that day I have conducted literally hundreds of funerals and while I'm not always asked that question I have yet to meet anyone who when they're face to face with death doesn't want to know the answer to this question is there life after death? What is so desperate, though, is that as I meet people to take their loved one's funeral, what is so desperate is that generally these dear people have spent all their lives knowing that death will catch up with them one day, yet never getting to grips with it. Never really grappling with it, putting it to to one side, out of their minds, largely ignoring it, like the proverbial ostrich burying their head in the sand, hoping that it will go away. I saw a parent playing peekaboo with their little, little one just uh, the other day and it uh, reminded me of when ours were, were smaller. 
Um, and uh, all three of them used to enjoy peekaboo. I was thinking particularly of Joshua being our youngest, how he used to play peekaboo. You know peekaboo, don't you? I'm sure you do. Uh, the rules of the game are quite simple. Someone hides and then someone else tries to find them. And on being found, everybody shouts peekaboo. Usually they're behind the curtains or something. You see the curtain moving so you know where they are, but you play the game. Well, Joshua didn't even bother going and hiding behind the curtains. He would just stand in the middle of the room with his hands uh, across his eyes, eyes tightly closed, and I would say, where's Joshua? And he would giggle. Uh, Where's Joshua? More laughter. I can't see Joshua. Where's Joshua gone? Uncontrollable whoops of laughter from the middle of the room. And on it goes until he could stand it no longer and he'd whip his hands away from his eyes and we'd both say, peekaboo. And he'd nearly split his sides laughing. It was all very funny and it worked because Joshua thought that when he closed his eyes and I couldn't see him, uh, because he couldn't see me, I couldn't see him. Of course, it was great fun and completely harmless. What is not so harmless is when we do exactly the same with death. If we close our eyes to it, we think, well, death can't see us or get us. Uh, When I uh, lived in Essex, I was asked to uh, go to a local school to speak about what I believed as a Christian. I was speaking on this very subject of life after death. And I said, as part of my sort of presentation, I said, we're all going to die. And as I said those words, up shot a hand at the back of the class. Yes, I said, I'm not, sir. You're not what? I'm not going to die, sir. He was a 15 or 16-year-old lad who I don't actually think was trying to be clever. I think he really believed that he would never die. And I guess that is why so many young lads drive motorbikes the way they do. They believe they're immortal. They're not going to die. It won't come to them. Most of us, of course, would not be that brazen about it. Most of us wouldn't have the temerity in this room to stick up our room, our hand right now and say, I'm not, sir. I'm not going to die. But many of us actually live that way, living as if death is never going to grab us, playing peekaboo with death, That, of course, is why it's such a shock when it does and why often we are so unprepared for it when it does. I wonder if the story of Sam Riddle has uh, grabbed you in these last couple of weeks. He was the lad uh, killed by a hit-and-run driver two weeks ago in Bristol. A car mounted the curb while he was on his way home from a church youth meeting. I wonder if you think that two weeks ago when little Sam Riddle got out of bed that morning and went off to school... Do you think that for one minute he and his parents thought that by the end of the day he would be dead? Of course they didn't. But before the day was out, he was catapulted into eternity. We can bury our head in the sand. We can try and pretend it won't happen, but it won't go away. The stark reality is all of us are nearer to death today than we were yesterday. And as a vicar, I feel desperate that I keep meeting people who haven't given it any real thought. And when I meet them, in a way, it's almost too late. I can understand why it is. After all, we have no answers to the problem of death, do we? But let me say to you this morning, that is the one big reason why I'm a Christian. Because the Christian faith gives me answers to the big questions of life and not least of all to the question of life and death. Uh, Sam Riddle's tragic story has demonstrated that to us. His parents are committed Christians and Sam was too. His dad works for a Christian organisation called Agape. 
Uh, You might have heard his parents made an appeal to the driver of the car to talk to police. And um, as they did, Sam's dad said this, Sam was the most wonderful of boys and we loved him very much. His smile could light up the darkest room and his attitude to life shone out of him like a light. He was passionate about football and he loved his brothers and us. He also knew he was loved by us very much indeed. He also loved Jesus and it's comforting for us to know that he's with him now. Isn't that something? Now look, as a a father of three young children, I can't begin to know what that dear family are going through. But what a fantastic comfort to know for certain that now Sam is with Jesus. That he hasn't just fallen into an abyss of nothingness. Now let me ask you this morning, what do you make of that? Don't you think it would be wonderful a wonderful thing to go through life being sure of that, that there is life beyond the grave. Uh, The mother of a friend of mine was speaking to her neighbour about this same comfort just a few days after her husband had died. Her husband was a committed Christian, she was as well, and so she was telling her neighbour that now she was sure that her husband was with Jesus, exactly the same phrase as as Sam Riddle's uh, parents used. And the neighbour said this to her, well, that's a nice thought. And I don't think that the neighbour was being cruel, but I think that's all she thought it was. And here's the question I want to ask this morning. Is that all it is? A nice thought. A nice thought to get us through the pain of death. Is the Christian certainty about life beyond the grave nothing more than kind of wishful thinking? A psychological crutch to help us hobble through the agony of death. I want to tell you this morning that the Christian confidence in the face of death comes from something very certain. It comes from this, the historical fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, Christians have not thrown their minds away to sort of hope that this is true. Christians have solid grounds to believe in life beyond the grave. It is all tied up with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Sonia helped us to think about that earlier. So as we grapple with this issue this morning, uh, this question of is there life after death, the big question is this, can we be sure that Jesus rose from the dead? Because as Sonia said, if we can, then we know somebody's defeated death. Well, to begin to answer that question this morning, uh, let's uh, look at Mark chapter 16. Uh, We've uh, had it printed out on the service order, as uh, you know, as Bernadette read it for us and um, turn again if you will with me to chapter 16 and verse 1 of Mark's Gospel. Verse 1 When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. As we begin to read chapter 16 uh, the situation is this Jesus has been crucified, died and buried and we meet here three followers of Jesus going to the tomb where Jesus had been buried. They they went, verse 1, in order to um, uh, anoint his body. And we read verse 2 very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? Now as we read those first three verses of Mark chapter 16, it is clear that Jesus' first followers did not expect Jesus to rise from the dead. They had gone to anoint a dead body. The only question they had in their minds was how are we going to get to the body because there's a big stone rolled in front of it. How are we going to get in? Now the point is this. 
They didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead any more than we do. But we don't expect people to rise from the dead. We may long for it, but we don't expect it to happen. Four years ago, I, I took the funeral of a man who died of, the, of cancer of the esophagus. Um, he was in his 50s when he died. Um, it all happened very quickly, from diagnosis to death. I remember going and seeing him when he was first diagnosed, and uh, really it was uh, very quick after that. He came from an Asian family, and so their custom was to have the lid of the casket open during the funeral uh, so that mourners could pass by. And I will never forget the heartbreaking moment as that passing by of the coffin began. Uh, it was his wife, the widow, who went up first uh, with her, her two children. And I'll never forget her um, holding him and sobbing over his body and crying for him to wake up. Wake up, Joseph, she said. Wake up, Papa. That's what she used to call him. See, we long for people to wake from death. But we know it won't happen. And the disciples were exactly the same. And that is crucial to underline. Because it is suggested that people in the first century, without our scientific knowledge, were more open to the supernatural. And so it is said that back then it would have been easy for them to fall prey to reports of a, of a risen Jesus because people believed that resurrections from the dead were possible. Now C.S. Lewis actually describes that thinking as chronological snobbery. Here we are years on, far more advanced. Oh, they were bound to believe that nonsense, weren't they? Chronological snobbery is what C.S. Lewis calls it. Actually, to think that way is intellectually indefensible. It is a fundamental misunderstanding of first century Greek and Jewish culture. See, in Greco-Roman thinking, the, the soul or the spirit was good, sort of the, the real you, as they put it, inside, that was good, while the physical, all the stuff we can feel and touch and see, that was weak and corrupt and defiling. And so for the Greeks, uh, the Romans, bodily resurrection was not, a, was, was not only impossible, it was totally undesirable. No soul that was finally free from this body would ever want it back again. So the Romans in Jesus' day wouldn't have been expecting or even wanting a bodily resurrection. And uh, the report of Jesus' resurrection would have been unthinkable for the Jews as well. See, unlike the Greeks, the Jews say the material world is good. They still say that today, not just then. They say the material is good. It's been created by God. So death was not seen as liberation from the body, as the Greeks saw it. But while they believed in a future bodily resurrection, they believed it would happen when the whole world was renewed. If you ask a Jew today, that's when they believe there will be a final resurrection on a final day and a total, um, a total time of, of renewal of the earth. You see, the idea of an individual being resurrected in the middle of history while the rest of the world continued to be burdened by sickness and decay and death, inconceivable for the Jew. So do you see this, this suggestion, this belief that back then people were more likely to accept news of a resurrection? It's really intellectually naive to hold that position. The people of Jesus' day were not expecting a resurrection of one individual any more than we are today. And it's very clear here, isn't it? Jesus' followers certainly weren't. So verse 1, they visited the tomb in order to anoint the dead body. Their big concern, verse 3... How do, we, uh, how do we get to the body? Who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? They weren't expecting a resurrection. 
And yet what did they come across? Well, look at verse 4. When they looked up and saw that the the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away, as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. He has risen. Three words that change everything. It is amazing, isn't it, how three words can change so much. I'll never forget on the 13th of June 1992, it was a warm summer's evening in Windsor. Uh, I was sitting in a restaurant overlook, uh, on a balcony overlooking the Thames. It was a perfect night. And then I heard these three words, yes, I will. I just, I just proposed to Caroline and she said, yes, I was so relieved. She didn't say, you must be joking. Uh, she, said, she said, yes, I will. And those three words changed things for me forever. They've changed how I live, where I go, who I go with, what I think about. Three words can change a lot. And here's three more words that could do the same for you. You are fired. Well, I mean, I don't want to be uh, joking about it. Some may have heard that recently. Those, those three words have huge financial implications. Uh, they change also the way we live what I do in my leisure time, my plans for the future, not to mention my status and my self-esteem. Three words can change everything, can't they? But look, these three words in Mark chapter 16, verse 6, Jesus has risen, he has risen, these three words change everything in the whole universe forever. This is how one man puts it. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. It's a huge issue then, isn't it? You see, Tim Keller is the man I've just quoted. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, you've got to listen to him on everything. You must take him seriously. But for us this morning, the point is this. If he rose from the dead, we can be sure there is life beyond the grave. Not only because he's proved it, but because he said there would. Well, we've read the words, he has risen. What's the evidence? Are those three words true? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Various theories have been put forward to deny the resurrection. Let me present uh, a couple of them uh, to you now. Uh, Firstly, some people say the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Uh, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they just got the wrong tomb. They were upset, they'd forgotten where Jesus had been buried in their grief with their heads in a spin. They went to the wrong place. That would be easily done. Any of you who have been bereaved know that. You don't think clearly. Well, look back with me to Mark chapter 15 and verse 47. I'll I'll, I'll read from verse 45. When he, that's uh, Pilate, when Pilate learned from the centurion that it was so, that is that Jesus was dead, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. And then read verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Very important. As Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body, these two women saw him roll a stone against the entrance to the tomb. They saw where he laid him. They saw the stone being being put against the tomb and that is why they spoke as they did in chapter 16 verse 3 remember they said who'll roll the stone away it's a heavy stone we can't move it they saw then where Jesus had been laid 
And when they arrived at the tomb, verse 4, they saw the stone which had been rolled away. Oh, this was the same tomb, all right. What's more, besides Mary and Mary and Salome, uh, there are others who visited the tomb and saw the body gone, most notably John and Peter. Uh, We won't turn to it now, but you can read it for yourself in John's Gospel, chapter 20. It talks about John and Peter going to the tomb. And crucially, when they arrived and went into the tomb, they did not see an empty tomb. They saw an almost empty tomb. They saw folded grave clothes telling them that this was the same tomb that Jesus had been laid in. They'd just gone to the wrong one when there was nothing there. They'd gone to a tomb where there were clothes, grave clothes still in the tomb. Well, the wrong tomb suggestion doesn't really stack up as you look at the evidence. Here's a second theory that is put forward to explain away the resurrection, and that is the suggestion that someone removed Jesus' body. Several different people might have done this. Some say it was grave robbers, that the the body was stolen. Well, we've seen already how uh, this heavy stone was rolled in front of the tomb. Uh, But let me uh, read from Matthew's Gospel and and fill out why that was and and what went on. Um, No need to turn it up unless you want to. It's page 1000. But here's Matthew chapter 27 and verse 62. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise the disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. You see how the authorities went to some lengths to guard against the removal of the body, putting a seal over the tomb, posting an armed guard there. I don't know how persuasive that is for you, but it became more persuasive for me when I began to understand uh, how a Roman guard operated and how they wouldn't have allowed the body Uh, to be stolen. Uh, George Curry, in speaking of the discipline of the Roman guard, says this, The punishment for quitting post was death, according to the laws. The most famous discourse on the strictness of camp discipline is that of Polybius, which indicates that the fear of punishments produced faultless attention to duty, especially in the night watches. You see, the the Roman guard would themselves have faced death if they hadn't kept good guard over the tomb what's more in John's gospel we read that when Peter and John arrived at the tomb and they went in and saw the burial clothes still in the tomb what they saw is very very important the original words in the original language tell us that they um, well the way the grave clothes were, were, were left in the tomb tells them that the body couldn't possibly have been stolen Firstly, why would grave robbers not take the body fully wrapped anyway? Uh, But secondly, even more compelling, is the way the burial cloths lay in the tomb. They were not bundled up and tossed in a corner, not rolled up. But the grave clothes had collapsed as if the body had passed right through. And not only the the main grave clothes, but also the head cloth was, uh, the word is twirled still intact like a a sort of turban. Again, not 
untwirled, not unwrapped and put to one side. The heavy stone, the Roman guard, the grave clothes, all the evidence is stacked against the suggestion that the body was stolen. Some then say, well maybe it wasn't stolen, but the Roman authorities took the body away to ensure that the disciples didn't steal the body and then fabricate a resurrection. But if that had been the case, why didn't the authorities produce the body and parade it through the streets of Jerusalem as soon as the disciples had claimed that Jesus had risen from the dead? It would have been very easy just to have got rid of that sort of nonsense that they were saying. Some, of course, suggest that the disciples themselves stole the body. But how do we explain, apart from all that we've already said about it being very difficult to steal it, how do we explain the fact that many of them then died for their faith? Why would they die for something that they knew wasn't true? See, the wrong tomb suggestions don't really stack up. The theory that Jesus' body was stolen is really quite implausible. And so here's a third theory. The third theory put forward to explain away the resurrection is that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. That he fainted on the cross and then in the cool of the tomb he revived. Well, how does the historical evidence match up with that idea? First, consider the physical suffering that Jesus endured. Remember, he was flogged and beaten. That flogging was enough to kill a man. Many did die just at the flogging. Second, he was crucified, a terrible and excruciating way to die. And third, while he hanged on the cross to make sure he was dead, do you remember the Roman soldiers thrust a spear into his side? Now, to go through that suffering and then to perhaps only faint on the cross and then to come round in the tomb push the stone away, get past an armed guard, then convince people that he hadn't just revived, um, that he that he'd actually risen from the dead. Well, frankly, I think that's more difficult to believe than the resurrection itself. Uh, secondly, when it comes to the fact that Jesus didn't actually die, uh, some uh, say, uh, uh, consider the Roman army's attention to detail. See, again, if the Roman soldiers had taken a victim down from the cross before he was dead, they themselves would face the death penalty. And so, as I've already mentioned, before taking him down from the cross, we're told in John's Gospel that the soldiers made sure he was dead by thrusting a spear in his side. They wouldn't have released the body if he hadn't already been dead. Indeed, we read that in chapter 15 and verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked if Jesus already died. And when he learned from the centurion it was so, then he gave the body to Joseph. He wasn't going to give the body away easily. Was he really dead? Well, third, consider the burial he was given. In Mark chapter 15 and verse 46, we read that Jesus was wrapped, his body was wrapped in linen and spices. John's Gospel tells us more detail, telling us that Joseph used 75 pounds in weight of spices. Uh, Jesus' body would have been then sort of mummified, not exactly, but kind of mummified, wrapped in clothes, grave clothes, that were heavy from the spices, and the spices as they sort of dried off would have glued together. It would have taken a remarkably strong man to get out of the burial clothes, even without having gone through the torture of crucifixion. See, the idea that Jesus wasn't dead, that he revived in the tomb, that he could persuade others that he'd risen from the dead, it's not a convincing theory at all. And again, it doesn't fit the evidence. The wrong tomb, the stolen body, the idea that Jesus never died in the first place, none of them 
but to my mind, are serious contenders to explain away the resurrection. And then fourth, there's the evidence of the resurrection sightings. Remember, Jesus was not only seen once or twice by one or two people. His disciples saw him over a period of 40 days. They touched him, they ate with him, they walked and they talked with him. And it wasn't just his close followers who saw him. Uh, when the Apostle Paul writes to um, some uh, Christians in Corinth, uh, in the Greek world, um, he can write this. What I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the Twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Isn't that interesting? Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. I don't know how many of us that there are here this morning. 150, I don't know, 200. Imagine if, uh, if Jesus came and stood before us. And you, it, it maybe if, if one or two of you went back to your friends or your family who aren't here and said, we saw the risen Jesus. They might say, oh. if all of us went, it'd be far more convincing, wouldn't it? That's what he says here, 500. He says most of those 500 are still alive. In other words, to the people he's writing to, he says, you can go and check it out with these people. Ask them if they saw the risen Lord Jesus or not. It's just once or twice. 500 people. Now look, I've only begun to scratch the surface. I've gone through it fairly quickly. There's so much more that could be said on the evidence for the resurrection to demonstrate that Christians haven't thrown their minds away when it comes to believing uh, that Jesus really rose from the dead. If you want to read more, I, I can't uh, uh, more heavily uh, uh, suggest that you read this book, Who Moved the Stone? by Frank Morrison. It was written some years ago. Um, I, I love it, not least of all, because of the, um, the, the first chapter. The first chapter is called The Book That Refused to Be Written. Uh, Frank Morrison uh, was a lawyer, and as a lawyer, he decided to, as an unbeliever, decided to take the evidence for the, uh, for the resurrection, uh, look at the evidence with the documents that he had in front of him to, dis- to disprove that it really happened with a lawyer's mind. And, well, you've, you've probably guessed it, the book that wouldn't be written, he says in the opening chapter that he couldn't write that book because as he looked at the evidence, he became persuaded. And so he wrote this book to persuade others who moved the stone. Um, and it gives you an awful lot more of what I've been saying and a lot better Evidence for the resurrection. The historical evidence is all in favour of Jesus having risen from the dead. If you say Jesus did not rise from the dead, then the burden is on you to come up with a historically feasible alternate explanation for the birth of the church. What changed a bunch of frightened and beleaguered men and women to become a courageous group that changed the world with their message of Jesus' resurrection? The burden of proof then, you see, is on the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I don't know what your reaction is to all of this, but I would guess that for some here, rather than say, you know, that's fascinating, I'm going to look into the, into the evidence for this. For some here, your knee-jerk reaction will be now to be searching for other reasons why not to believe. I wonder why that is. This is such good news. Why do you want to look for reasons not to believe it? 
This is such good news because if this is true, then we can begin to look at death squarely in the face and know there's an answer. We've heard from Sonia what a difference it makes not only to death but to life. Wonderfully, we can know there's a way of being certain of life beyond the grave forever. Jesus said these words, I am the resurrection and the life. He said them and then he lived them. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. What a difference that makes. Uh, It's made a difference to Sonia. It's making a difference to me now with my own mum. In my job, if I can put it this way, as a professional, it makes a difference. I've seen a number of people die. Let me tell you, knowing this makes the world of difference. Let me tell you of just one. Her name is Tracy, Tracy Trinder. I remember visiting her in in the room in the hospice uh, that she was in just days before she died. Uh, Many, she was a very popular lady, many people had come to say their goodbyes. And um, as I went into the little room to spend time with her and pray with her, with her husband and her son, and after I'd spent some time with her, I came out and began chatting to a good number of people that were just spending time with her in her last few days. Uh, many of them weren't Christians and they said to me, Tracy is remarkable. That she has such confidence. She is absolutely sure that she's going to spend forever with Jesus. They said, that place has, that, talking of the room she was in, that place has such peace in it. They were absolutely blown away by the way she died. See, Tracy was certain of life beyond the death, beyond the grave. She knew that Jesus had risen from the dead and she put her trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And her death was remarkable. Knowing and trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection makes all the difference in the world. And not only for death, but also for the whole of life. A friend of mine put it like this. It is wonderful to know that as you lay your head down on your pillow at night, ultimately everything is okay. Isn't that good? Wouldn't it be wonderful to know when you get up in every morning or when you go to bed every night that everything ultimately is okay? Well, look, thanks very much for listening. If you've come as a guest here today, um, thank you for coming. Uh, we're really thrilled that you've come to be with us. Um, what do you do from here? Well, a number of things. You can go away and never think about it again. But I would suggest that you might uh, do some thinking. It's worth it, isn't it? Uh, if this is true. Uh, One of the things you could do is uh, buy a copy of this, Who Moved the Stone. We've got some copies in, especially for this morning, and they're available um, over in the church centre. And uh, so you could get a copy of that. If that looks a bit too heavy and thick for you, um, here's something that is not thick but simple, because I wrote it. And and, uh, it's a a book called If You Could Ask God One Question, and there's one chapter on there uh, on, uh, on the resurrection as well, which you might like to read. And that's very uh, easy to read as well. There's copies of that over the way as well. But the thing I particularly want to encourage you to think about is to sign up for Christianity Explored. Ed mentioned it earlier. When I say sign up, if you put your name down and then you decide after one week not to come back, we're not going to send the boys round. Uh, mainly because we haven't got any boys to send round. But um, we wouldn't do that. You could sign up, uh, come along to one week, see if you like it. Um, I think it would be time well spent, don't you? Uh, seven Tuesday evenings. Uh, I almost guarantee you'll have a good time. People always go away saying they've enjoyed it. Um, if you uh, discover at the end of it that uh, 
you don't really believe it. All you've lost is seven, uh, seven Tuesday evenings. It'll be fun anyway. If you discover at the end of it that it is true, you've, just, you've spent seven, seven evenings discovering eternity and being able to be sure of life beyond the grave. That's, what, that's a good investment, isn't it?